Welcome back to episode 80 of Chess Journeys, Tales of Adult Improvement. Here on Chess Journeys, we don't seek to just highlight the glories of ratings gain, which we all desire, but we also dive into the plateaus and perhaps even the pits of despair below that. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon Chess Journeys. I want to thank Matt Bush, Jay Garrison, Donna Rich Burgess, Brandon Hallside, David Schreiber, and Lindsay Newhall. I also want to thank our sponsor, Chessable. I'm up to 11 days. That's right. If you've been a, a loyal follower, you'll know we were at like one day, two days, zero days. I was kind of going in and out, but I've decided I'm going hardcore with tactics for the next month or so. Woodpecker every single day on Chessable, as well as I'm doing tune your chess antenna in book form, trying to hit those tactics, trying to be better at them. But guess what? Chessable is not just for tactics. You can do your openings work, your end game work. You can do about anything you want on Chessable. Chessable is great. If you haven't tried it yet, I'm just going to say, pause the show, go get it, and try it out. It's well worth well worth your time. I've also been streaming a lot on Dr. Skull underscore Tiny Grimes. Uh, I've been looking at Karpov games, doing sort of a guess the move. Uh, I'm wrong a lot more than I would like to admit. And it takes us a long time to go over the games, but we really go over them with depth. It's a lot of fun. And if you want to appear on the show, uh, you can fill out the Google form in the show notes. We all want to hear your story. But today, we are going to hear the story of a legendary figure in the chess community. He made tremendous rating gains as an adult. Uh, he wrote the wonderful Everyone's First Chess Workbook. And he started one of the greatest chess centers in the country in Charlotte. So wonderful. In fact, it has me thinking, like, should I just move to Charlotte? I don't know. Uh, let's welcome Peter Giannato to the show. And Peter... Have you had a chance to play any chess yet today? Uh, yes, I, I did. Uh, it's my routine to play about 30 minutes of chess uh, every morning. Uh, so I'll answer a few emails and then I'll play 30 minutes of blitz chess on either chess.com or Lee chess uh, and uh, just try to stay sharp every day. Okay, very nice. And is that kind of like the minimum bar you set and you're trying to exceed that? Or is that like, you just know going to the day, that might be it, that, that might be it. These days, that's, you know, that's, I figure that that might be it. Uh, sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I'll play for a longer, for a longer <laughs> period. But, uh, uh, but that's just my competitive nature, not because that's a good thing to do. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's about 30 minutes a day. If I play average games or uh, if I play well, I'll stop at 30 minutes. Sometimes if I'm not doing so well, I'll continue beyond 30 minutes, which is mm -hmm. probably not the right thing to do, but I can't help myself. So it is both staying sharp and uh, endorphins. I don't know, like some sort of combination. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've been away from the game as a, as a competitor, as a tournament competitor. So uh, the only thing I have to gauge my sharpness on right now is, uh, is my blitz my blitz chess against my peers online? So uh, I I don't take it overly seriously, but it, it still hurts me if I have a bad day. Okay, so I guess a couple questions there. One, do you analyze these games at all, or is it just boom, next game, next game, next game? It's pretty much next game. However, uh, after a period of a, you know a certain number of games, I'll if I notice that I keep getting beaten in like a particular opening or a particular structure, I will look at it later just because I go, okay, that just wasn't a bad game. I, this is happening over and over again. So let me check that. And then I'll jump on to 
like the Leech has um, a study tool and I'll, and I'll just look up what the, what the best players play. and, uh, and then I'll say, okay, next time I'll, I'll remember to do that, but it's not so serious for me anymore. It's, it's mm-hmm. really just an escape, um, you know, and, and, and fun basically. Okay. And when you say blitz, what are we talking about? Is this three Oh? Yeah. So if I play on chess.com, it's three Oh, uh, because I, I always play for my mobile device. And so I like the, uh, the, the pre-move functionality on the mobile device on chess.com. Uh, if I play on Lee Chess, I'm usually playing from, if I am playing from my mobile device uh, or from my desktop, I like to play three plus two because their, um, their pre-move feature is a little bit different there. And I'm not really a mouse player, so it's harder for me to compete there. So I usually play three plus two on Lee Chess. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like time is really an important element of these games. It's not just simply uh, regular chess sped up, but you're really cognizant that the clock is going to be a factor. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. These are, these are rapid fire games where it's mostly uh, experience and openings and intuition. And then very, very, very small uh, periods of time where you have a chance to actually calculate a line. Uh, but that might happen once or twice in a game. Otherwise, you're just relying on uh, just quick judgment and instincts. Okay. So as such, would you say that like for lower level improving players, let's say 1,200, is Blitz not quite as valuable then because our intuitions are sort of weaker and we need more time to calculate? Or do you feel like having those Blitz, blitz sessions does allow you to engage that intuition side? It feels like there's kind of that raging debate there of like four improvers, what is the right amount of blitz? Yeah, well, I think that different time, you know, diff- different time controls offer different benefits. So um, blitz chess might not be great for your overall chess improvement be- for the reasons you just noted. I mean, you can't really uh, put the position under a microscope when you only have a few seconds to think about what you're going to do next. But uh, two things, blitz is fun. And it provides you, so that's number one. And, and number two is that it provides you with uh, opening repetition and, and pawn structure repetition because you can get a lot more games in. So you figure you can develop some instincts, especially if you're, uh, if you're playing people who are really punishing uh, your, your poor play in Blitz. If you recognize those patterns, you can then go back and say, hey, I feel really weak when I play the... Um, advanced Carol Khan or like whatever, right? I just feel out of like a fish out of water. So yeah, the games themselves won't be great quality, but it might, it might give you at least a hint of like where you need to spend some time working on your openings. Uh, but the longer time controls, the longer the better really help your, your game as a whole. It's just that, you know, with time constraints, you might not have the ability to play, you know, a 10 classical games a week or something like that right or 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 you know or 10 rapid games a week depending on your schedule so uh all time controls offer unique benefits but definitely the longer the time control the better it is for your overall chess improvement mm-hmm. but uh, there's something to be saying there's something to be said about having fun uh and enjoying yourself while you're while you're while you're playing chess uh and so for me that's what that's what blitz is. It's fun and it's repetition, but I don't claim that it um, really helps me that much. If I, you know, as if I was interested in improving my game, I'm not sure it would be 
That's yeah. the thing that I would do the most. It, it also feels like it's the reality, right? It's what fits into your life. And sometimes as adults, that's what we have to deal with, right? Like our life is like this and we do what we can to fit chess in. Yeah, and you should, you should, uh, the first thing you should know about anything uh, that you want to get better at is that you have to enjoy it. So uh, if, if blitz, even though it's like an addiction uh, is enjoyable, but may not be improving your, your game that much, the question is, does somebody have to put the proverbial gun to your head to study annotated games mm. um, versus playing blitz chess? Like, do you willingly play blitz? But then when you um, when someone says, hey, why don't you go do some end game puzzles or some tactics, you kind of drag your feet begrudgingly doing it. It's like you got to remember and you have to ask yourself why exactly you're playing chess if it's if it's ego driven improvement, where it's just about improving but not enjoying it, then sure suffer by all means suffer and do what you don't want to do do what you're not having fun doing. Um, mm -hmm. But if you love the game, and you don't mind doing tactics and you find that entertaining or studying openings or improve improving your game, then by all means do that, but you do have to remind yourself why you're playing and for me at this point in my chess life. Uh, I just want to enjoy it. And I'm kind of content with realizing that where I got is probably where I'll be and that I can still enjoy the game and learn more about it, but not study it like a job anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll come back to some of that in a moment. I, I just want to share with the listeners, and, and you might find this interesting as well. Um, at my particular club, we play game 55 with a delay of five. And I got in a game where I hit the delay and I had like 30 seconds left and I was winning by a ton and just totally fell apart because I wasn't used to that speed and pace. And so I did this thing with my daughter. She's eight. She's a newer chess player. Uh, and we did a thing where I got 10 seconds plus five seconds delay for the game and she got 55 minutes. And it was a great equalizer. I did not play nearly as well. I was still able to barely hold my own. But then just this last week, I got rewarded. I got in a, in a situation where I was up a pawn in a drawish end game, but there was enough going on. He had 28 minutes. I had two. And I just felt so much more comfortable playing that rapid pace because that's what I had been practicing. So I think, you know, even if it's not just for openings, like if you noticed, like in time scrambles, I totally freak out and lose it it can be kind of worthwhile to, to sort of practice that environment a bit. Yeah, I putting yourself in those high anxiety situations like a, in a bullet game or in a blitz game where you know that the time is expiring quickly, uh, becoming familiar with that is good. However, in my experience, I always still, even though I always was, I would say a better blitz and bullet player than a classical player per my, per my level, uh, I it was always hard to make the transition in a classical game to yeah. the low time, like, like, and treating it like a blitz game once you got to under five minutes, let's say. So yeah. many of your listeners know that there's a US chess rule that when you're under five minutes uh, and there's not a 30 second or more increment on the clock, you can stop taking notation. So at that point, the formalities of tournament play are just kind of uh, neutralized a, a bit and, and lowered, and you're really just playing moves, but you're, you're playing moves from presumably a late middle game or an early end game where you've 
put in a couple hours of work to get there. And so your mind knows that your mind says, Hey, this is a, this is a painting. This is a picture that I've been painting for three hours. Right. And I'm about to treat it like a blitz game. So it's still very difficult to make that transition regardless. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, and I, and I just think some people's personality types don't do well in high anxiety situations, like where the time is running down, even if they have experience. Uh, what's very interesting is at the top levels of chess, some of the, the best blitz players are time trouble addicts in, in classical chess. Like one that comes to my mind is Alexander Grishuk, for example, who's been a world blitz champion, but in every classical game, he's down like 30 or 40 minutes on the clock. Um, part of that might be that he has confidence in his ability to come up with moves quickly with lower time, but it could be a personality trait that he's some kind of perfectionist and he really wants to find the best move all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know how much blitz helps when you get low on the clock in a classical game, because it's still very difficult to, to change your mindset. Um, when you're when you're going from actually considering your moves deeply to having to rely more or less on your intuition and some very quick calculations so yeah but that's why if and if there if chess is a sport that's why it is right it's balancing your time you know the time that you have to play the game with the quality of your moves and the anxiety that goes behind like if I get to zero on the clock, I'm going to lose. So I better make a move. That to me is the sporting element of the game. So um, it's just part of it. And you, you kind of got to get used to it. Yeah, it, it, I know it worked well for me, but I also did, like you said, I had to sit down and tell myself like, hey, this game's done the way it was being played before. You have two minutes. This is now a blitz game. Like, yeah, he has 22 minutes and he's sitting there like, hmm, I don't know. But it's not like that for you. Um, this is the hardest thing for me, Pierre, and this is going to sound ridiculous. The whole point of playing these for me is to write down the moves so I can go home and examine them. And it is so hard when it's like, like I was writing moves all the way down until about two minutes. And then I just had to give up and be like, I, I just can't anymore. Um, I don't know. I just really struggle with that. I want to write moves the whole way. Yeah, well, you, I, having a full game is very important obviously for your chess improvement, you know, knowing how the game went and what your thoughts were is really important when you do your post postmortem analysis with your coach or with your peers. Um, one of the things, however, is that managing your time prior to that type of discrepancy that you noted, like a 22 minute to two minute discrepancy is also part of the sporting element of the game. At some point during the you know, during the middle part of the game where you still have, let's say, double digit time left on your clock, 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, you really should be more cognizant of how much time you're spending playing average moves, because most chess positions have like four to six moves, which are all more or less the same quality. And if you're spending too much time on moves that aren't really the ones that count, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage later. And then the sporting element kicks in where it's like, okay, your opponent has 22 minutes and you have two, what do you think is going to happen? Like yeah. you make one small mistake and they have 20 minutes to figure it out. Right. So <laughs> you don't want to put yourself in that situation that much. And I have to say that I think one of the, 
one of the reasons that I was able to improve in adulthood was I, I refused to put myself in situations where I know I would play mm. badly. So uh, that would be certain types of chess positions, but that would also be low time situations. So I would make basic moves quickly in mm. middle games, even if I knew there was a chance like, okay, if I played this one, or if I played that one, there might be a fraction of a pawn difference by computer standards. I didn't really care because the game still had to be played. So I'd make, I'd be a little bit more practical. Um, if, if we were both, if we were going to get into time trouble, it was going to be mutual time trouble. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to be that I have one minute and they have 15 minutes. Like that's your, that's just too much of a disadvantage. Um, so the practical element of the game should also be at play. Um, yeah. and you're playing and you're trying to improve. You have to realize that it's okay not to play the best move all the time. And, you know, sometimes that's, it, it's better not to put yourself in desperate time trouble. Yeah. I like that. I'm usually quite good about it. Um, I've, I've been really working on making easy moves fast and not investing too much time in positions that aren't overly tactical. I don't really know what happened in that game. There, it was like, a four move situation. No, it was like eight moves where I thought I was good. And then I realized like, wow, how did I get here? And so it like took me a while to even unwind. Like, how did we even get to this spot? And I don't know. I just kind of got lost in the, in, I think I got lost in regret, which is not what you want to do, right? Like who cares how we got here? Let's just play this position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, of course, you know, chess is difficult and sometimes, you know, things happen that you don't anticipate and you need time to, to recalibrate and, and take a look at what's happening. Uh, but in general, uh, you want to avoid as much as possible, you know, the, the danger zone, which is kind of the single digit time on the clock, right? When you're playing a classical game. So if you're starting with an hour and you start to approach below 10 minutes, it's getting to the danger zone, especially if you're not playing with an increment time. If you're playing a delay time, which is most time controls in the US, mm -hmm. then your, your time is not growing when you're, when you're playing moves. It's just merely freezing, right, for a few seconds. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if, if we talk about this throughout the interview of, about just practical chess improvement um, tips, you know, time management and, and playing a move in a non-tactical situation that may not be best, but it's a move that gets by is actually a really important practical thing to be able to do. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Cause there's been moments where I've doubted it, where I'm like, uh, I could have spent more time there, but it's just like, just slide the rook to the open file. That seems reasonable. Let's just do that. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, let's take a step back for just a moment and then we will dive deep into improvement uh where are you at in your journey so let, let's just talk about like what's your rating today how much progress were you able to make as an adult just kind of so our listeners have an idea of, of who we're talking to here yeah so my my u.s chess rating is about 2370 right now but i haven't played in three years is my last tournament hmm. and uh my peak rating was 2390 and um my peak fide rating was 2300 which is how i got the the fm title and my journey as far as chess goes now is really on the 
non-player side. It's really on the promotion of the game and uh, the educational side of the game. So my personal chess journey in terms of my play has been, let's say, halted. Uh, as I mentioned, I still play, but I don't emphasize my own chess improvement. So most of my time in chess now is promoting the game and helping others get better as they wish. All right. Do you regret that decision at all? Are you like, oh, if I just kept pushing, I could be whatever it is I think I could be. Uh, and and do, you, do you wake up ever and you're like, what if instead of 30 minutes, I did four hours and I didn't go to work today? Yeah, well, I, um, to be honest with you, because of the journey that I had a kind of a late bloomer for at least for those who become masters, um, I started in my teens in my when I was 13, and not a diamond in the rough I was 500 was my first rating so a pretty basic starter rating. And uh, I didn't become a master until my my 20s I think I was 22 when hmm. I became a US chess master and then 27 when I became an FM which was another approximately 190 rating points or something like that from, you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in that period. And so because I started late, I never thought mastery was necessary, po necessarily possible. Uh, the first goal was expert level, which was two, which is 2000 rated USCF. And then when I got there pretty quickly, I said, okay, let's readjust. We'll make master the, the goal. And so it took me another four years uh, to get from expert to master. And then when I got to master, uh, my girlfriend was at the time was also a chess player and hmm. that encouraged me to stay involved. So I continued to play. I did not have the, the goal of FM, which was uh -huh. to increase, you know, I did not have that goal, but as I kept playing with limited effort, I kept, gaining ratings. So I thought maybe the amount of study that I've put in was worth more than the mm -hmm. NM title. So let me just keep playing. And then when I got close, I started making more of a conscious effort to say, okay, you know what? I'm getting real close. Why don't I just make FM a priority too? And sure. so that's what I did. So to answer your question, I don't regret, uh, I don't regret kind of stopping my own personal achievement because I never thought I would get where I got to begin with. So when you don't have these crazy high goals, like becoming a GM or becoming an IM, you're really content with the small goals you set for yourself that you actually achieve, you know? And at some point, as most of your listeners who are primarily adult, uh, adult improvers, the balance of life and making a career for yourself, you know, my twenties were very important. Uh, to building the, the career and the chess center and what what exists now. So I don't regret it. You know, it's just it's just one of those things you you you, um, you sacrifice in one area to gain in another. And so in the back of my mind, I guess sometimes I go, what would have been the potential? But then mm -hmm. I also think about, well, if I focused all of my attention on my own chess growth, would we have a thriving chess center in Charlotte that's recognized on a national level? Would I be in the same position career-wise that I'm in right now if I just focused only on chess, even if I would have become an IM? Like, I, 
so I don't, I try not to think about it like that because mm-hmm. you, you give and you get, and it, it just, it, it all works out. So I try not to think about it like that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause it's like, let's say you had become, I am and didn't have then the resources and time to start the chess center. What do you actually have? Like being an, I am is cool. Like I would love to be an, I am, but I'm not sure it would be worth sacrificing everything in my life to have it like to be 2700. Okay. Maybe then like, you know, extensive life sacrifices would be worth it, but it's a little unclear um, just what exactly an I am brings you other than like, it's awesome. Like it's a, it's a cool title. Um, So I think that's really interesting, but I'm also wondering something. This is so interesting to me. You had sort of lower goals and then easily exceeded them. It's so different than most adult improvers who are like, I'm going to be I am. And then they're they're like, what's your rating now? You're like 1100. And you're like, I don't know if in the next three years you're going to go to I am like, maybe you will. I'm rooting for you. Um, But what if your goal had been I am from the beginning? I don't know. Like, did your, do you ever wonder if your lower goal sort of held you back or do you just think they actually sort of helped you on your journey because they were actually achievable goals? I'm just curious, sort of the psychology there. I have no clue, to be honest with you, Kevin. I, I, a piece of me thinks that they may have held me back a little bit because when I got to NM, uh, I just kicked back. I was like, okay, goal achieve, like right. done, you know, whatever. But as I mentioned, my girlfriend at the time was playing. So I thought, well, she's a chess player and going to chess tournaments is like a thing. So I'll just keep playing. If it wasn't yeah. for her, maybe I would have just kicked back and stopped there. So I think that the, yeah, I, I think that, it, it may have limited my my mm. potential in some in some ways, but the reality is is that those goals take time anyway. So even if I made I am a priority, I don't think my I don't think the time it took me to get to each one of those uh, rating levels would have really changed that much. And then again, mm. I would have reached that crossroad, which would have been okay, Peter. You're now in your mid twenties. You've already opened a chess center that's in, that's becoming increasingly busier, you know, making making my life busier, mm-hmm. and I can't focus on my chess game uh, and run like a, a business at the same time. So it may have put me back a little bit, but achieving goals feels good too. Yeah, you know what I mean, because now the only thing I think about is what was my potential. But I, mm. but, but as far as my goals go, I reached them, yeah. right? So it was, um, and I, and I agree with what you're saying. I think most people that set these high bars for themselves are either naive or really, really, really cocky. And I think that it is important to set goals that are achievable. And then once achieved, the reevaluate, you know, reevaluate only then. So mm. let's say you're a, uh, 1600 rated player and your goal is to get to expert to me that's a very fair goal you know to me Mm -hmm. 1600 to 2000 is a very fair goal but that's still a real effort that's a lot of that's a lot of effort and uh so let's say you then get to expert and you say okay what did it take me to get to expert it took me five years an average of three hours a day of study and 500 classical rated games or whatever. I'm just, these are Mm -hmm. numbers I'm just making up. Yeah. 
And then you reevaluate and you say, okay, well, my next goal would be master, which would be 2200. And I know that every rating point thereafter gets increasingly more difficult. So am I prepared? Am I reasonably prepared to now go this journey again? Or am I happy with where I got, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually think it is important to set realistic goals and then achieve them, reflect upon what it took to achieve them, and then reevaluate whether you think the sacrifice is worth it. Because I agree with you. Uh, chess uh, games are a personal achievement only. They really are. Uh, me being an FM or my friends being IMs or, or GMs, at the end of the day, it's really their own personal achievement for them. It doesn't bring you anything guaranteed uh, career-wise or anything else. Um, so you really have to just do it for yourself. There aren't these other benefits that really come along with it, especially if you weigh in the time sacrificing commitment it takes to achieve them. So you can't even think like that when you're, yeah. when you're thinking about these goals, you have to be, it's purely for you because it is really not for anything else. If you were thinking about it logically, you'd be like, no way, man. Like I'm, it's <laughs> way too much work to do yeah. it. Uh, for the gains that you would get other than personal happiness and fulfillment, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so to, to get to the point of goals, I think that smaller achievable goals where you make it a point to reevaluate once achieved, I think is uh, more motivating and less naive because I think that the lower your rating, the harder it is for you to understand the level of commitment and difficulty to get to the top 10th percentile of all chess players, the top five percentile of all chess players, the top one percentile of all chess players. It is a very difficult and extremely competitive thing. And uh, so setting smaller goals mm, calibrates your perspective a little bit uh, better, in my opinion. Yeah, I think your story also kind of helps back that up. It's like you were able to achieve goals, be happy with your achievements, and then move on to the next phase of your life. Whereas if instead, when you were 1800, you were like, my goal is I am, and then you hit FM, and you're like, still disappointed. And then it's like, and now I'm going to start a chess center and retire from chess unfulfilled. That's a very different trajectory than like, I made master, I made it. And then you're like, you know what, screw it, let's get FM too. All right, now I walk away fully satisfied. And of course, have the brief moments where you're like, what if, but you're not like haunted by them. Yeah. And what's interesting, Kevin, is because I'm around the chess world all the time, I very quickly realized that no matter what level you get to, people still see you as a scrub unless you're the next level up. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. So if you're an FM, some club players like, well, I watch an IM on YouTube. So you're, you know, you're like nothing to me. But then <laughs> if you become an IM, then somebody's like, well, my GM friend said this, right? Yeah. And so, okay, and that happens. And then you're a GM and you're like, oh, you're a weak GM, right? <laughs> so like, you know, people say that about my, my friend Ben Feingold, right? oh, you're a weak GM. So then you don't even get fulfillment there, right? Because, because at the end of the day, you know, even though what you've done is, is, is incredible, you know, to get to any level like that, uh, mm -hmm. weak GM, quote unquote, or not, um, the, there's always the same people who are just going to be like, well, there's this next level up. So you still haven't achieved yep. that much. So 
when you realize that, and I realized that pretty quickly, mm. you, you then realize you're not doing it for other people and for the respect that other people may or may not give you. You're only doing it for self-fulfillment. And then when the 11 or 1200 starts yapping about the international master, the GM, then you just beat them 30 times in a row with your eyes closed. And then they, they start watching your YouTube videos. Uh, and okay. um, so it's really just, um, you got to do it for you and you have to eventually be happy with where you get. And if you're doing it to, to please other people or to impress other people, it's, it's going to be in vain because no matter what you achieve, unless you become the world, you know, Magnus Carlson or something, they're always going to tell you how you're still not the best and you're still not, you know, you still haven't, you still haven't reached your, your peak. You still haven't reached yeah. the next level. So you, yeah, you just have to be, at some point you just have to be happy with mm -hmm. your own personal. So you know what? I reached the top 1% of all chess players. Fantastic. Um, balancing that with a career and a life and, and I'm, I'm happy and I'm not miserable and I'm, I'm not having to make end, ends meet, you know, um, by doing things I don't like to do. And so, you know, as adults, we just have to realize that, that the balance of everything is the most important and, um, and that the chess achievement is just a personal thing. It has to remain personal. You cannot, you cannot put it in your head that the world is watching you improve yeah. because they're not. What, what's funny to me, this really resonates because it goes all the way to the top, right? Like Nepo lost right. kind of badly in the world championship. And right. and I'm a teacher at a school, at just a regular high school. These kids are rated like 400 and they're like, Nepo's trash. And I'm like, Nepo is not trash. He's amazing. What are you talking about? Right, right. <laughs> and it's like that in everything. It's not just like that in chess. Um, if you're not the best, if you're not considered the greatest, you're just considered the scrub. So, you know, um, and, you know, it's, again, you got to do it for you. And that would, that would be my, uh, my advice to adult, to adults out there is, you know, set your reasonable goals, do it for you and recognize what an achievement it is to be in the top 20% of all competitive players, which I guess would be like 1800 or something like that, or, mm -hmm. or 2000 top 5% of all chess players, master top 1%, right? Just recognize how how much of an achievement that is um and and don't be down on yourself for for getting to you know to those levels and don't certainly don't feel like a failure if you don't meet these high bars that you have that you may have set for yourself so um so yeah i mean i hope just basically to offer a different perspective than what most people do which is chase these wild high level dreams and that lower goals can still be really incredible, especially if you're balancing chess goals with other things in life. Yeah, that's been, it's been a challenging for, thing for me is to like, how do I describe myself as a chess player? Because all of my students know that I go to chess tournaments and we talk about them. And then they immediately are like, how good are you? Right. And I tell them some rating number that doesn't mean anything to them. And they're like, no, no. I just mean like, are you good? And I, and in the past, I've always been like, no, I'm really bad. And they're like, what? And then, so then I did exactly what you said. I just decided I'm going to look. And in, uh, out of U.S. tournament chess players, I'm in the 85th percentile. And so I was like, you know what? That's what I'm going to say now. Like you can decide whether I'm good or not, but here's a number. 
And I was a little surprised because I was like, I'm like in the 30th percentile. And I looked and I was like, huh, okay, I guess I'm a little better than I self-describe. But it's hard to think you're good with, you know, every everyone's better than you when you go to a tournament and you play a section up. You're literally the worst person in the whole tournament. Well, if it makes you feel better, Kevin, I'm a master and I still feel that way whenever I go to play in tournaments. So you okay. got to just sweep it under the rug because... It never goes away. You're, there's always that next level above you and you never feel like you're good enough. But the reality is you are. And um, and not because I'm a motivational speaker, because I'm not. I usually tell people the truth about themselves. But um, it's just that you, you're, you're still better than the vast majority of competitive players, which means that the casual person off the street that wants to play you easily beat them, right? So you eat, those people aren't even accounted for, right? The non-tournament players aren't even accounted for, and you're more than you're more than likely uh, going to beat the vast majority of those players. So um, you're still kind of a I don't want to say expert because we have that as a title in chess, but you're still a you're still very well versed in chess as a 1600 or 1700 or 1800 keeping in mind that most people do not get to those rating levels uh, when they play chess. So yeah, it's all relative. I think it's such a good point for like, especially really low rated players. Like my daughter is rated 133 and I can tell it's kind of bugging her. Like she's played in a bunch of tournaments and okay, here's the story of my daughter. She plays great chess. She just likes to hang her queen every single game. So it's kind of holds her back. Uh, but she joined the school chess club and none of those kids play chess and she just whomps them all. And so it's a great, I think, uh, way to re-remind her that, like, you are a good chess player. It's just when you play in a tournament, you're playing against the best chess players, the people who are, like, going, driving to a place to set time aside to do this. And everyone else in the world, you're going to be doing quite well against. 100%. I mean, that's true for... Your, your daughter at a, you know, I guess, elementary school level. Uh, and that's true later on in life as well. And that, and, and I mean, in your chess journey. And the thing is, is that, you know, 1800 players, really good. 1600 players, really good. It's all relative to, to that. You know, when I was 1600 and I was playing other 1600, it's extremely competitive, right? And it takes time to like work your way up. So, uh, it is all relative and it's a hard, hard levels to achieve anything basically above 1500 is in my opinion, um, a, a, a very, uh, it's a good, uh, achievement to be above 1500 rating level. In fact, one of the things we do here at the chess center for our junior players is once they reach 1500, because I consider that a, I consider that the, the level where you've really made a commitment and a sacrifice to chess by the time you get to 1500. You've studied the game, you've played countless tournaments, and you've really, you really, you know, have made an investment in chess. So what we actually do for those students who reach 1500 is they can join our elite chess team and they get an hour free live training with uh, Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky, who lives here in Charlotte. And the CCC subsidizes it. We get them, um, we get them team shirts and everything to encourage them to stay in. And it's just a token of gratitude to these parents who have um, and, and the kids 
who have achieved the 1500 rating level or above and the sacrifices that go along with that the tournament travel the lessons they took the camps that they that they participated in their just general commitment to chess so as a master i consider 1500 the level that shows real commitment to the game and a level that isn't easy in my opinion to achieve yeah it's so interesting to hear you say that because i've definitely felt that way and i was wondering if it's just because I'm only 1750 and once I get higher up I won't think that way but it feels like at 1500 people are generally just playing good chess and they may overlook something and maybe there's a structure they don't fully understand but they it does feel like they have a pretty good understanding of chess. I think so too and I think that the the statistics don't lie on that because when I look at the you know the the uh the ratings the rating graph just to see where everyone lies I mean you're still talking about top 30% of uh, tournament players, right? So that that leaves out a lot of people. So yeah, I still think it's a it's an incredible commitment to um, to chess to even to reach 1500. So that's where we reward kids, I could have easily made the elite chess team since it's subsidized training, I could have easily made it 1800 or 2000. But the reality is, is that not many people make it to that level. And maybe it's just because at some point it becomes so difficult that they don't feel like the struggle is worth it anymore. So then they just kind of let it go. And so, so I, I see 1500 as the, the pain point and to encourage students to continue, we have this so-called elite chess team for yeah. juniors rated 1500 above. Cause that's where I see uh, that's where I draw the line as fully committed. Okay. But it's arbitrary. Yeah. I would love to join this team and train with Daniel <laughs> Nerdisky. Just saying <laughs> I, I can send you my birth certificate. I'm 11. Uh, it's going to be great. All right. Well, you have kind of done the impossible as an adult, you made pretty sizable rating gains, especially starting as a teen. So I'm wondering if you can sort of what are some of the most helpful things you came across in your journey that really helped you push through? You talked about, you know, time management and really taking that seriously. Uh, what else would you put out there for people? So uh, I think what, what helped me stay involved with the game for such a long period of time was I had a really good peer network in chess. So mm -hmm. I, I was having fun for most of the journey. Obviously, losses were never fun. I'm a very, I'm a highly competitive person uh, on and off the chessboard. So losses were never fun, but having a good peer group, making traveling to tournaments, playing in tournaments, fun. You don't just feel like you're there alone to just play a few chess games, but that you're actually enjoying it. Uh, that was probably uh, a very important part of sticking with it for so long. Uh, the chess content, you know, the actual chess skills that I think are needed are definitely as most people describe them, which is you have to increase your board vision by doing tactical and calculation based exercises to constantly push yourself to look beyond where you currently can uh, see. So if you're calculating, let's say, relatively accurate, accurately at a two move depth you really want to push yourself to a two and a half move or three move depth, right? Where you're seeing a little bit more and you want to continue to do that as accurately as possible. While of course, 
learning new patterns and themes and things like that, which is why it is controversial, but that's okay because I, I tell people what I think, which is why I don't think repetition of the same tactics is actually a good use of your time. So I don't want to call out particular books or things like that, but I think that once you have solved, you have, you have solved a particular pattern, uh, chess has so many patterns to learn and so many patterns and so many situations to solve that in my opinion, you should be, once you've learned and been introduced to the pattern, you should be in search for new uh, patterns and, and things that train your brain to think differently. So uh, tactical pattern or tactical play and in uh, calculation based exercises are definitely things that you that you need to be doing to improve your game that I bring up the repetition of tactics. Uh, point because a lot of people ask like what's the best way to do it, and I think that uh, you should solve puzzles to the best of your ability, if you can't then obviously look at the answer and enlighten yourself, but I don't believe that you should repeat the same uh, set of puzzles over and over again. I, chess cannot be memorized. You have to learn how to think and you have to learn how to solve unique situations because that's what happens in your own games. So that would be a controversial take that many wouldn't necessarily agree with, but that's my take, which is uh, chess is about solving unique problems. You gotcha. know? Uh, so and, for something like openings you might think repetition would be good because you're going to see that over and over exactly that's but tactics mm -hmm. you need variety yeah. exactly because uh yeah openings is more like the spelling bee you're 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 actually trying to memorize i mean you're trying to understand just like you would if you were in a spelling bee you, you have to understand like let's say root words or you know how certain things are spelled depending on their origin it's in the opening you have to memorize but you're also trying to fundamentally understand what you're doing. But yeah, that does take a lot of repetition. But when you're training your, uh, your tactical vision, you need to be exposed to pattern after pattern after pattern. And, and there are so many in chess. Like even now, if I open a tactics book and I solve some puzzles, I'm like, wow, that's beautiful. I've never seen that before, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, that, and, and I've solved a lot of tactics puzzles. Okay, a lot. And then I'm still like, whoa, that was so cool. What, what a tactic that was, right? So in my opinion, you, you, you want to put yourself in those unique situations, which is why many, many, many top players even advocate for studies, which mm -hmm. are composed pop problems that are designed to trick, to trick your normal thought process, right? And, and, and high-rated high players swear by studies because what it does is it cracks your uh, linear thinking like you would when you're normally solving a tactics puzzle, right? You, you're, you really have to think outside the box. So let me ask you a question real quick about that. Yeah. Cause I, I keep thinking to myself, like studies are for people who are already good. Like I'm just trying to get to where I can solve the linear straightforward stuff. And I should be holding off on studies. What, what do you think about that? Should you engage with studies earlier just because it does promote creativity or is there some level that you need to get to no i think that the studies that you do because they're varying levels of them right so um one of my favorite studies to give the kids and i know that this is probably not great um for uh for podcasts but it's actually a simple it's actually a simple position so it's 
it's white to play and white's king is on f6 white has pawns on g6 and g5 black's king is on g8 so essentially it's a king and two doubled pass pawns and black's king is blockading it and it's four pieces and it's designed to teach the opposition and i would give this to um i would give this to students that are rated around a thousand and the answer for your for your um for your podcast guest is uh pawn g7 squeezing the king out to the h7 square mm-hmm. and not king f7 which is stalemate that would be the usual way to do it but to actually promote the pawn giving it away so g8 queen king takes and then king g6 which is a standard opposition technique in a king and pawn endgame that you as a 1700 should definitely know mm-hmm. and my students that are a thousand levels should definitely know and we add the extra pawn in the little stalemate trick to so-called make it kind of like a, a study, if you will, even though it's not a, a difficult one, but somehow the concept of throwing away your extra pawn gets my students every time. Like they just, they consider all moves oh. except for ditching the, the first pawn and just, you know, and so it doesn't have to be some long winded, crazy study. It can just be something that breaks your general thought process when solving. So obviously it's very difficult to find those specific ones tailored to your level. So yeah, your safest bet is definitely to continue to solve the kind of basic puzzles, but, um, but studies and, and, and things that break the standard thinking habits are certainly possible at lower levels too. Yeah. I think I would recommend uh, Kostya Kavutsky's uh, chessable course on his endgame studies. I think they're, targeted for that lower level if, if you want to try that it's funny you say this because it's like the more you're saying that i'm like hmm. like i get in when i do too many puzzles i get trained to like look for these overly forcing moves in games and i feel like maybe studies would help me understand more of like preemptive moves and quiet moves to set up the mates and like giving away the pawn to set things up rather than like it's probably bishop Sachs on h7 and then the rook sacks, and then and then you get in a game like a classical game, and you start calculating that for like twenty minutes. You're like, "What am I doing? This is not a chess.com puzzle. This is a regular position. It is not. Have, this is not relevant right now." Yeah, and, and and to be honest with you, you do have to really learn how to to calculate force lines uh, accurately. And I would say, I cannot. That cannot be understated. Like you have to be able to calculate those exact tactics that you're talking about which is brute force boom 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 i win like you have to be able to calculate those it's just at some point the your opponents just don't allow them as often so being able to think outside the box and kind of constructing your your position in such a way setting you up for the final for the final blows um that requires more of the imagination side of of the game uh where you're kind of infusing tactics and strategy at once. So you're like achieving these strategic things, but you need to be setting up these killer blows or potential at the same time, right? And, and that's very difficult. I'm not saying that it's easy. I just think that, that uh, studies have really opened up my mind to, uh, to a different way of thinking. But for the vast majority of your audience, learning how to calculate forced lines 
is the most beneficial thing that they can do for themselves right now uh, at their and their chess journey. Are there any books that you recommend for either studies or tactics? These can be virtual or physical. Tactics uh, for 1500 to 2000, I recommend Forcing Chess Moves by Charles Hurtan. I've, I've recommended mm -hmm. that before. Uh, I think that it's got the right idea, which is to enhance your the ability to calculate forced sequences of moves that win games. Uh, below the 1500 rating level, there almost any uh, club level tactics book would be fine. Uh, my own book is really recommended for a thousand and below, so it doesn't fit mm -hmm. the category of a thousand to fifteen hundred. Uh, but Susan Polgar's Chess Tactics for Champions is one of those that I feel like really gets it right for that thousand to thirteen hundred rating level. Um, oh. I think you know I would always recommend that to my students. But to be honest, like maybe my you know maybe book references and and tactical books for the advanced player uh are not as needed anymore because of these online databases like chess tempo and chess.com and lee chess mm -hmm. and various other uh, platforms to train on but there's some there's something about organized tactics that i like so yes i would say um Chess Tactics for Champions by Susan Polgar for the 1,000 to 1,500 rating level, 1,500 to 2,000 rating level, Forcing Chess Moves by Charles Hurtan, and for anyone above 2,000, Perfect Your Chess by Andre Volokitin hmm. is, is a great book, but it's extremely difficult, so you okay. really need to be at least uh, 2,000 for that. Do you recommend separate books for, like, calculation, or do you think it's just doing tactics for your level? Like I know for myself, I like to do the, uh, oh man, I can't remember the name. It's like guess the right move or something like that by Hort and Kianza. And it's way above my level and half the time, over half the time I cannot get it. Uh, but it does force me to really go deep in a position and engage, but it's like 20 minutes to miss a tactic. Would I be better off just doing 20 tactics? I should have said this earlier, Kevin, the, the, the thing that everyone should be doing more than reading uh, and, and uh, solving and things like that is playing. Mm. Uh, 80, 70 to 80% of your chess growth is going to be learning from uh, your own errors. And the old, you know, it's uh, the way to do that is to play classical games and then analyze those games with a higher, uh, higher level, coach, a higher level friend, somebody that can provide you with the next level uh, of advice on your thought processes and the things that you missed, opening your eyes to the possibilities that you had in your specific position that you just played at the club level, right? And so I should say that ahead of all these book recommendations, right, none of those are the magic potion or recipe for chess. And all of the books that I mentioned probably have 10 to 15 great substitutes for mm -hmm. them. And so I should say to not be misleading that, and, and I've told, I, I've said this before, and you know, it, it, it'll cause a firestorm, but adults tend to be um, mm -hmm. risk averse in a way that they're, they're, they want to over prepare before mm -hmm. they go out and actually do it. Right. 
But my recommendation is suck it up, go to your local chess club, play that classical game. Doesn't matter who it's against. If it's against a 10 year old, if it's against a 30 year old, a 70 year old, it doesn't matter. Go play that classical game, get out of your own head, bring it back, show it to somebody you respect, ditch the chess computer, show it to a human that you respect to give you insight on your own game. Talk about it. See, this is what I was thinking. Don't be ashamed of anything. Do not be ashamed of any dumb thing at all. Like anything that you see as embarrassing or whatever, don't be ashamed at all. Um, and learn from your own personal mistakes. And then the preparation part of reviewing your openings and doing your chess tactics, that's 20 or 30% of it. But you really have to get out there and experience it like firsthand. You have to play. And you're going to learn the most from that. So book recommendations aside, my recommend, my real recommendation is go to your local chess club. If you can't get out to a local chess club to play a club, you know, to play a formal game, play the, the Lee chess 45, 45 or whatever, these online leagues, you know, really put your chess under a microscope and don't run it through the computer and think that, you know, you know, what's going on, a human coach is still going to be your best bet to fix your, your habits. And I did read some of your podcast descriptions and aim chess may be one of your sponsors. And I uh -huh. have a great reputation with aim chess as well uh, as, as we work with them for things that we do. Uh, AI is great pointing out the, the fluctuations, you know, the, um, in the computer analysis, right. And trying to provide some explanation for what's going on in the position. And I'm sure in 10 years, who knows how AI, you know, how, how that will develop over time, but still for now, you, if you really want to get better, definitely want to have that human touch as well. Um, yeah, I agree. that's what I would say about that. I really, really resonate with your be honest thing. It's one of the things I've done with my coach that I think surprises him at times where I am like brutally honest or he'll be like, what happened here? And instead of making up some bullshit, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be real here. I missed that the night could go there. And he's like, what? How? And I'm like, I don't know, man. But I did. I missed that. And then I think that just helps because it's like it, it lets us both know, like, I still occasionally miss some super basic things. And perhaps that's one of the things I need to overcome, even if my knowledge is this high and even my skills are there. Occasionally they're not. And that that problem can be a big part of it. So I agree with that. Honest is important. And I was thinking about this the other day, Peter. I've got all these students. They're all like super hyped about chess right now. And I bet not one of them will go to a tournament. And I think it's for what you're saying. It's, it's kind of scary. And I was just thinking like, why do we have so many young kids that play? And I was thinking everything for kids is new and they're bad at it, right? They're just like used to being bad at things. Like I would never go join a cricket league without playing, right? Like I would study it. I would watch videos. I'd go in my driveway and I'd cricket. But like my kid is like, I want to go join a basketball league. I'm like, you don't know how to dribble a basketball. They're like, that's cool. And I'm like, this is the mindset that adults don't have, right? We can't just throw ourselves into disaster. And I think it really holds people back from being willing to go to the club or go to the tournament, that fear of embarrassment, that fear of failure that kids just don't have. And it's, it's such a freeing thing. 
Yeah, uh, and I understand that myself. Uh, you know, as I want to learn new things and try new things in life, and I don't want to be the embarrassment. But uh, for the most part, all of that stuff is in our own head. Um, unless you're going to chess club with the girl of your dreams, and you don't want to let her down, or the man of your dreams, or whatever. But yeah. unless you're going, unless you're going to the chess club, and you feel like you're somehow going to be embarrassed in front of somebody who means a lot to you, mm -hmm. get out of your own head. Right. Get out of your own head because no one's really no one really cares about how you're doing. It's really just a, a personal thing. It's a it's an ego thing. And get out there and do it. Um, I, as an adult, have learned a new language. I've um, and it's embarrassing to talk to other people when you feel like you don't know a new language. Um, yeah. I have played amateur pool. So like, um, mm -hmm. you know, competitive amateur pool and learning that. And obviously people have been playing and studying that for uh, a long time or needless to say masters at, at that. And so, yeah, there's nothing really to be embarrassed about learning. In fact, I find it kind of admirable when adults come into the chess center and they're picking up chess and they, they don't mind putting themselves out there to, to that failure. Like I, I find it admirable because these are usually people that have, uh, succeeded in other areas of the things that they do, whether it's their careers or other sports and hobbies, and that chess is just one of the things that they do. And so I find it admirable that they have the balls to come out and do it and not be a chicken like a lot of the people that listen to your podcast who never want to get out there and do it. So um, yeah. I don't see them as like, oh, look at this guy, like 40 years old, 900, what a schmuck. Like, I don't see it like that. I, mm -hmm. I see them as brave and, and, um, and courageous, you know, for coming out and trying something new, knowing that, you know, knowing the truth that they're not going to be that good. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing to remember is everyone was there. So like when you show up, the vast majority of people aren't going to be judging you. They're going to be remembering. They're going to be like, oh my goodness, I remember when I was that level, man, it was so challenging. Or I was too afraid to even come out until I, you know, I hit 1200 on chess.com or whatever magical rating I had in my head I had to be. So I, I think generally people are pretty supportive also. So I think that's, it's good to keep in mind. Um, I want to transition to to what one of the, my favorite things about what you're doing, and it goes along with adult improvement. You started these Alto tournaments. Um, like I, I, last time I tried to move like heaven and earth to make it all the way out to Charlotte across the country, just for what is basically a random tournament because it just looks so fun. So can you talk about like, what was your inspiration for this tournament and how did it go the first time? Was it successful? Um, yeah. So uh, my inspiration uh, has evolved. I mean, my, my thought about these types of things have evolved over time. So what I mean by these types of things are these uh, are tournaments that, let's say break apart the the open tournament atmosphere. So those would be like kids only tournaments, uh, girls only tournaments, women's only, uh, seniors only, whatever, right? My former opinion about these things was people should just play chess and they should play in an open environment where it's about the skill of the game and, and all that. But my, my thoughts of this have evolved, not forgive me personally, because I still don't wanna play, um, even in adult only events, the kids never bothered me, but I do understand the the social anxiety and the pressures that come along with being a girl in chess, or I, I don't personally understand that, but being more involved 
and seeing with my own eyes some of the things that come along with that, I now have a greater respect for, let's say, girls-only tournaments. Similarly, adult-only tournaments, you know, adults wanting an environment that is more friendly to them, less embarrassing for them to enter, you know, just more comfortable somehow, right? So all of these things grew on me. So Alto was an idea that uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Walter High, who, who uh, is our senior tournament advisor and somebody who I've known for over a decade here in North Carolina, he started Altos as small little uh, adult-only tournaments that didn't really attract too many. I think the, maybe the most he ever got for an Alto tournament was like 50 or 60 players. And That's pretty so, big, though. Yeah. So when, when, uh, when Walter came on to the Charlotte Chess Center team, we put our, you know, put, kind of put our minds together. And I said, it had, been, it had been three or four years since the Alto. And I said, what if we bring it back? But like, I'll get on Twitter, I'll, I'll, I'll cause a ruckus. I'll try to get people to come out. I'll offer free drinks. We'll, we'll, we'll really kind of, we'll, we'll kind of push it to the next level. Plus we had the benefit of the, the Queen's Gambit and the pandemic boom and more adults coming to the game because of that. I said, let's bring it back, right? So that's where it came from. Yes, the, the first one back was success. We had about 110 participants for that one. I did buy everyone a drink at the bar on Friday night, like I promised. And I will do the same thing for every Alto from now until forever. Um, because um, I do understand that having a having an adult friendly environment is um, I do understand its appeal. Uh, the one thing that I have to be very careful about as a chess promoter and organizer, when it comes to girls only events, um, adult only events, seniors only events is my goal is not to segregate the chess community. So when we do these things, they're once or twice a year. It's mm -hmm. not all the time. I don't want it to be a substitute because then what we would have effectively at a local level later on is if let's say they were monthly. So the kids would play the kids tournaments, the adults would just wait for the alto, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe there would be some mix in for like open tournaments, but people, would feel like they would um, they would have a choice. And then we'd actually, even though we're trying to make it more comfortable, what we would actually do is segregate the, the chess community as a whole. So that's the only thing I have to responsibly carry out when I do these events, that we do them, they're novelty events, they happen periodically, once in a while. We know why they're there to encourage certain groups and motivate certain groups of people to play, but I have to say, my goal is not to segregate the chess community, but merely give people a chance to play in an environment that is a little bit more appealing for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I was wondering why you weren't doing it more often, but that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because for me, like, I don't mind at all playing with kids. I, I have an eight-year-old. I love playing chess with kids. What I really like about the adult-only tournament, though, is more one of the reasons I'm in chess is that camaraderie. And it's just hard to have that same camaraderie with a 10 year old. Uh, they rarely, I have found want to do postmortems. It's just a different thing, right? They're, they're there for a slightly different reason than I am. And that's what appeals to me so much about the, the at least 21 tournaments is I feel like the people there are there for the same reason. Probably they're also 
trying to meet some other chess players, hang out a bit, go over games, get better, stuff like that. And that was all happening, Kevin. Like that night, uh, Friday night, we had our social, right? So it was after the first round. Everyone was there and uh, everyone got a drink, but obviously people stayed and all night and got more drinks and, and did whatever they wanted to do. We had the chess boards and we had, and I was, you know, even I, even I was playing, you know, I rarely, most of our events are like three, four, 500 players, you know, at, when we do them at hotels, um, the Alto is a smaller kind of novelty event. So even I'm in there uh, playing blitz with, with everyone, right. And having a drink with everyone and, and uh, socializing and building that. So I totally get it. It's just that, as a promoter of chess as a whole, again, I, I'm treading a fine line with it, depending on how frequently I hold events that naturally cut out other groups. Yeah. And I could see it from the perspective of like, let's say it's on some weekend, um, some person's like, oh, I, I have this weekend available to play in an event. Oh, cool. The Charlotte Chess Center is holding something. Wait, it's excluding me? Come on, I just want to go play chess. Like I can understand how that would be frustrating. Yeah, okay. and um, and I, you know, I have the the goal of building of growing chess as a whole. So yeah, I. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, that sounds good. Um, I have a few Patreon questions. If you have a few more minutes to sure. uh, answer a couple, okay. Sure. Um, so one comes from Don and Rich Burgess, and they're wondering: Do you supplement or do you recommend supplementing? I guess chess training with physical training. And if so, like, have you done this in your past when you were sort of at your peak improvement? Do you suggest this? What do you think? Yeah, well, I think uh, the body and mind are, you know, obviously going hand in hand. So uh, the better physical condition you're in uh, should help your game. I will say, though, that chess is primarily about the skill of chess. So having more energy, being physically fit helps, especially with those very long games of chess, those four, five, six hour games where you have to maintain your concentration. Still though, uh, the most important part is the chess part in chess. So um, it doesn't it doesn't help, it doesn't hurt to be um, in good shape. Uh, the top players in the world are all in relatively good shape, but they also aren't athletic stars. So their primary skill is chess and they wanna maintain some degree of physical fitness to handle this six hours of calculation nonstop sitting at a board. But uh, it isn't, I would say the, a huge factor, but it would, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone to say that being physically fit is somehow a bad thing at almost anything, except maybe sumo wrestling or something like that. You gotcha. Know? So yeah. augments a bit, but not replaces skill. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Uh, Don and Rich Burgess are also asking, what motivates you to improve and push harder, especially if it's not a title? It sounds like for you, it kind of was getting the title. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was playing, that's what it was. And then once I achieved it, I played maybe three or four tournaments after that and mm -hmm. just kind of called it called it quits And for, for then. I mean, maybe I'll return to the game. It's just that uh, at some level, it is like a job maintaining your opening repertoire and uh, maintaining your mental sharpness and having to play all the time. So uh, what motivated me was the achievement of, uh, of getting that, of getting that title. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I loved playing five and six hour games in uh, 
downtown Philadelphia hotels or, or DC hotels or whatever. That's not the part I enjoyed that much. Uh, I did enjoy my friends. Like I already, as I already mentioned, I, I do have a great uh, peer group, both near and far, but it was, it was the chasing achievement that kept me going. Okay. So it was really goals and title yeah. goals. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question is by Babyfoot. Uh, and they're wondering, what are your thoughts about beginners focusing uh, their earliest study on end games instead of, say, openings? I'm wondering if they would say tactics or if they're saying exclusively over, over openings. Um, and they're saying something like the idea of beginning with the end in mind as a persuasive one, which also seems like the Russian model, right? Yeah, and even at the chess center, we do that to some degree. But mm -hmm. the way we would do that, let's say for beginners, is uh, when we're teaching, we would teach peace movement. And then the next thing that we would teach would be um, essentially the how a game would end. So, you know, introducing mm -hmm. check, checkmate, what that means with very few pieces, taking it, fast forwarding it to that end position. So yeah, you, you kind of going in reverse, right? Uh, the opening doesn't really come uh, until far later. So yeah, I mean, if you mean end game as like the ladder checkmate and uh, checkmates in one, like super basic checkmates in one at the end of the, like a queen and king helper checkmate or a ladder checkmate mm -hmm. or a rook and king checkmate, then definitely the end game first because um, knowing how to confidently finish a game is way more important than how to open a game for, for most beginners. Mm -hmm. uh, because you, yeah, you do have to kind of have an understanding of what you're trying to achieve. But when you're a beginner, uh, board vision is the most important thing to work on. So those would be uh, checkmates in one, checkmates in two, uh, tactics in one move, just really focusing on board visualization. Uh, openings, yeah, I would say comes in last place if you're a beginner. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, I'm wondering, like, do you jump into things like opposition fairly early, or are you kind of saving that until they're, say, like 800 or something? Yeah, probably that, that level, that 600 plus is where I would really talk about opposition. Um, there's a funny quote, so I as a 2100 rated player, I asked my coach at the time, Grandmaster Alex Shabalov, uh, if I should study end games or not, because I had never formally studied them. I played a lot of them in practice, yeah. but I never formally studied them. And he said, uh, no. <laughs> so, so I didn't. Um, I thought for sure you were going to say, he said, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he basically said that, you know, if you, um, you sharpen the rest of your game, you won't have to resort to squeezing somebody out in in, uh, in mm. some kind of theoretical endgame. It wasn't that I didn't play endgames. I learned a lot by playing, but studying the endgame beyond the essentials, like how to promote those pawns, right? Like leading with your king and mm. um, maybe the Lucina's position or the Philidor's draw, or some of like the really standard ones, the rest of them are, are really calculation-based. Um, mm. And so if you improve your other areas of the game, like if you can really see the board well and calculate well, that's going to help you in the end games. Fewer pieces, lots of calculation goes into the end game. And if you're a really good, if you're a really good calculator, that's going to help you more in the end game than mm -hmm. a lot of these theoretical um, positions that 
don't really happen that much in play. I mean, beyond like a, a couple, like maybe two handfuls of positions that are kind of those ones that you kind of know that you need to know. Right. Yeah. So have you not read Deveretsky's manual? Heck no. Are you crazy? So I, I, yeah, no. Would you no. not recommend it for a 1200? Oh, God, come on. <laughs> um, I, I always tell people I only have Deveretsky stuff on my bookshelf to make me look smart, but I've never actually read it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't own it yet. I've just decided like Kevin, that's, that's for future Kevin. If you hit like 2,300, but uh, it seems unlikely. We don't need to own that. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Peter, I mean, like, I feel like I could talk to you for like eight more hours and we would get nuggets of wisdom from you. My, my guess is you don't have eight more hours and I've got a chess match to get to tonight. So nice. I'm just going to say, thanks so much for coming by Uh great work you're doing at the Charlotte chess center. Um, your book was it the first chess workbook. It's yeah, phenomenal for beginner. Yeah, everyone's first chess workbook. Thank you. It's phenomenal for beginners. My daughter is working through it currently. Um, I will say not loving it, but that's not your fault. She just doesn't <laughs> like tactics. I'm like, hang your queen every game. Please do tactics. She's like, nah, I'll be fine. I'm like, okay, okay. Like, I'm not that dad who's like, listen, you're doing it. I'm just like, all right, you enjoy chess your way. I'll enjoy it my way. Uh, but it is a great book. We've done it together uh, and had a good time with it. So thanks so much for stopping by. If people want to contact you about, I don't know, coming to Charlotte, setting up events, uh, maybe like uh, uh, getting to know Daniel Naroditsky, uh, how can people get a hold of you? So they, uh, I do have all social media pages. So like uh, the Chess Center has all social media pages, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I have a Twitter. You can follow me on there. Uh, that's like a personal one. And then uh, through our website, charlottechesscenter.org, you can send me any messages you'd like through our contact portal. And I do get those. So it's... Um, yeah, it's just a way to kind of um, to get a hold of me if they if they uh, if they'd like to. So, so yeah, and I appreciate you inviting me on here, Kevin. I think it was a connection through a through a now staff member of the CCC, Jay Garrison, who who yeah. you had on your podcast. In fact, I listened to uh, mm. his podcast before I interviewed him. The, the, the podcast that you guys had. So, um, so yeah, it's a small world, yeah. and I really appreciate you having me on. All right, yeah, no problem. And just so you know. Uh, for all of you out there, uh, Peter talks about having that peer group and Jay is part of mine. Like when we go to events, we hang out. We'll, I'll, I'll have a weird position. I'll be like, Jay, let's spar this position. Like it helps so much having that person around your skill level a little better than you that you can really work with. So, so that really resonates with me. All right. Well, Peter, thanks so much for coming on. It was great. And I can affirm I, I contacted you through the, your website. I was like, will he respond? Because some websites, that's just a way to collect stuff and put it in a trash can. And I was like, we're going to find out. So you emailed me back. So you can contact Peter that way. Uh, so everybody out there, I hope you have a great week. I hope this is the week you hit 2390. If it's not, and it's uh, a regular week and uh, you're struggling, that's all right. We all go through our struggles. Come back next week. We'll have another guest with some more nuggets of wisdom for you. And I hope you have a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>